your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a loud trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series on the symptoms of a healthy church. And today I want us to underscore there's one part of the church that's always healthy, and that's the head. The head never gets sick. And I think our view of the head of the church determines everything about what we are as a church. A low view of Christ will be a low view of worship, will be a low view of preaching, a low view of pre, uh, praying, a low view of holiness. A high view of Christ will change your view about everything else we do around here. Christ-centeredness. I've been to churches, and uh, Carol and I sometimes, you know, visiting, when we're on vacation, sometimes I literally say, you know, how'd you like this service? I said, well, I miss Christ. Uh, I had a latte. I had a donut as bad on my health. And, and I saw screens everywhere, but I never saw Christ. I never felt Christ. I never felt like he was in the midst of, I don't think he was core. He was center. It's very interesting. We're talking about the symptoms of a healthy body. This message is we must have a sovereign Lord over the church. And you must have that view. You see, 
Your feet can never heal your feet. Your ears never heal your ears. Your hands never heal your hands. All the healing comes from the head. Your head tells you to make a doctor's appointment, buy the prescription, and apply it. My, my hand doesn't make the appointment. It's my head that tells me I'm sick. I've been having this hip problem. You know what the hip has a way of doing? It has a way through a nervous system of telling my head I'm hurting. I'm on bone on bone without any uh, uh, ligaments there, nothing to cushion. So it's telling my head, you better see somebody to get you out of pain. And so John has been cast on an island about 30 miles off of the mainland of Asia Minor. And he's put there for having preached the word of God. He's suffering tribulation in the first century. It's an interesting thing. Rome is growing. Rome is in the driver's seat. Rome is hunting the church down like dogs. And the last of the apostles, John, believed to be in his 90s or older, John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos, 30 miles out there in the Aegean on a windy little 10-mile-long, 5-mile-wide island. And while he's there, the Lord comes and speaks to him, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I believe the Spirit came on him and either put him in a trance or put him in a visionary state. His state is changed. It happened to be on a Sunday, the Lord's day. I was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard... Behind me, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Right in a book, address these seven churches. A little kind of a mail route over there in Hierapolis, Colossae, and in that Asia Minor area, Ephesus, Laodicea. They were all kind of, if you were running a postal route, you would hit all these cities. John, I want this to be a circular letter that you send to these seven churches. And he picks these seven churches, I think, because they portray the seven kinds of conditions that exist in churches throughout the church age. And, and at one period of a church's life, you might be the Ephesus church. Another year, you might be a Pergamos church. Uh, one year, you might be Thyatira. You're not just locked in. You're this church all the way through. But seven different kinds of churches. I think I've been in almost all of them. Have you ever been to a dead church? I've been to dead churches. Sardis, you're dead. You're dead. And does that mean the building was dead or the congregation? Uh does the building lose the first love or the congregation? Don't get mixed up. The church isn't buildings, it's you. My brother's got a favorite line. Sometimes people would say, let the church pay for it. He says, Mr. Meet the church. I'm the church. You don't ever say that, I know. You just automatically write a check. 
Phil Ross used to say when we'd vote in a new budget, he would stand up on the floor and says, now how many of you agreed to increase your giving to meet this budget? Got quiet. It's easy to vote in what you don't plan to support. And so we have this picture, sevenfold description of Christ. First description of him is he's seen as a sovereign despot. Watch what he says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. What he's picturing here, his dress is that of a sovereign. Uh, some make it, he's seen here as a king. Some make it the high priest garments. Uh, some say it's the garments of a judiciary. It, it is not peasant wear. It's not everyday street wear. He's in the official capacity of judging and exercising his divine sovereignty in the world and over the church. Listen to me. This is the picture of Christ, not at Gethsemane with blood dripping off of him. This is not the Christ of Calvary with spit rolling off his face, blood rolling down his brow from the thorns. This is not the Christ of Pilate's Hall. This is the contemporary Christ of 90 A.D., He's no longer on a cross. He's no longer spit on. He's cleaned up. He's enrobed. He is sovereign on high. Spears no longer can reach him. He survived the spear. He overcame the grave. And John has said, John, Caesar thinks he's running the world, but this is the one that's running the world. Rome's going to pass. They may have thrown you on an island, but I, your sovereign, am in charge. So he's seen as the sovereign God, and he's in the midst of the lampstands. You always find God in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of these lampstands, which are the churches that are supposed to be putting out light for him, and here he is among them, and he looks to see this voice that's like a trumpet. That is an amazing. You know, when you get older, you lose your hearing. John's was pretty good. I heard something sound like a trumpet. The last time John had heard that voice was 60 years before. John was at the foot of the cross. When Jesus said, John, take care of my mother. He was at the Sea of Galilee in John 21. Feed my sheep. He was there in the upper room. But it's been nearly 60 years. And believe me, he recognizes the voice. And when he heard it, it wasn't a whisper. It wasn't the voice of an old man. It wasn't the voice of somebody that's got emphysema. No, this voice is the voice of eternity, and it's as loud as a trumpet. It's louder than the Aegean waves beating up on this island. I'm the sovereign, John. I want to talk to you, and I want you to send a message 
to the churches. He's in charge. I like to say this. Churches uh, can come and go, but this one never comes and goes. He's here to stay. He's sovereign. And he said, when I saw him in the middle of the lampstands, he looked like a son of man. That phrase right there was the favorite title of Christ used over 80 times in the Gospels. Where did that come from? It comes from Daniel 7. Daniel comes before the Ancient of Days, which is not the Son. Ancient of Days in Scripture is the Father. And Christ comes before the Ancient of Days. And he's the one that can receive the kingdom. And he's the one that's able to conquer the Gentile world powers. And he comes before the Ancient of Days. And he comes as the Son of Man. And he becomes a title of his messianic ministry and of his humanity. God will set a man upon the throne of David, not an angel, but a descendant of David. That will be Messiah, the Son of Man. He will come by way of the virgin's womb. He will come by the way of Judah. He will come by the way of David's house, a dynasty. It's nothing to say God's reigning up there. There's coming a day he's going to reign down here. Mount Zion in Psalms 2 is not the third heaven. He's going to reign on Mount Zion, and he's going to break his enemies in two like a potter's vessel. Our Christ will reign someday on the earth, and his scepter will be mighty. I, the Son of Man, am talking to you, John. The sovereign, dressed in judicial robes, the robes of authority, the robes that we better listen. Notice his sinless character, secondly. Look at the picture of it. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Well, when you use white, this strong, snow, white as wool. Certainly purity and holiness is the emphasis. Some would also take it to be eternality. It's used of the ancient of days back in Daniel 7. What was used to describe the father in Daniel 7 is used here to describe the son because they're both deity. And so he takes the description of the father in Daniel 7 and he applies it to the Son. And what is he? I who talk to you in a judicial function in office. I am pure. I am holy. I can't be compromised. I can't be fooled. I cannot be mixed. I am pure through and through. There is nothing dirty about our God. He told Israel, when you build altars, don't build high altars, and don't let your priests walk up on them. You know why? He didn't want a nude body to be seen. He wanted no part of their body exposed. Israel's forbidden to build altars up because our God's not vulgar. He's not dirty. He's not an exhibitionist. Our God's pure. This is one God that you'll never be abused by. He told Israel, I don't want your sons. You're giving them to Molech. I'll give my son, but I don't want yours. If you've ever fallen in the hands of someone that's pure in motive and will never hurt you, it's in the hands of this sovereign 
the sovereign risen Christ of the Patmos vision. He goes on to say, he has searching gaze about him. Look at this. Imagine John seeing this. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The idea is they were like fiery torches in his eyes. Think of it as like laser beams or like if you could put a, a blazing torch in an eye socket. They, they were eyes that were aflame, but the idea is not they were just burning. It's the picture of penetration, penetrating look. He says in Revelation 2.23, I search the heart and the inmost being. Hebrews 4 says, my word divides between bone, marrow, spirit, soul. It's a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. Verse 13, he who before whose eyes all things are naked. John, I'm going to tell you about the churches of Asia Minor. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when the church goes to heaven in 4 and 5. I'm going to tell you what will be poured out in wrath in verses chapter 6 through 19. I'm going to tell you the end of Satan in chapter 20. I'm going to tell you what the new Jerusalem and heaven looks like in 21, 22. Hear me, John. I got all the facts. No one's hidden from me. I know motives. I know ministry. I know what's going on in the churches of Asia Minor. I know who's in Rome. Seven times he says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know, Ephesus, you've left your first love. I know it. I know, Thyatira, you tolerate people there that seduce my servants. You've got a woman named Jezebel that claims to be a prophet, and she's leading my servants to immorality and idolatry. Pergamos, I know you teach the doctrines of Balaam there, and you seduce my servants. Laodicea, I know you've cooled off. You're a sickening bunch to me. I know. Don't, don't, don't try to fool omniscience. I can see through you. And you on the pew, don't you think you've got anything hid from God? He knows everything about you. He knows what you do with your eyes, what you do with your ears, what you do with your mouth, what you do with your money, everything you're used to calling mine. I cannot call anything mine. I was in prayer one day, and I said, Lord, my, and I was rebuked. Oh, what's yours? Well, uh, my money. Oh, it is. Where did it come from? Well, well, my, 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 my. And God said, I could arrange that. I could take out all your source. Uh, my health, my wife. I want to fill you in. As for me, everything I've got, he gave me. He didn't give me, he even let me have bad breath. But, you know, I'll take the blame for that. Get rid of the my, my, my. I've seen the man who said my, my, my that lost it all. There was a man who said, look at my barns that I built. Look at what I built. I'm a self-made man, and you're going to be a self-fallen man. Everything good for us comes from the Father of lights, of whom there's no shadow or variableness. I call nothing mine, only my faults. 
I won't blame those on God. But the rest, every good thing. Sometimes, my wife. I prayed for a good wife. God gave me my wife. Not fathers, not chance, not luck. God gave me that woman. She's God's. I just get to live with her. And feed her. And love her. I know. I'm looking through you. I know your motives. I know your ministry. There's nothing hidden. I know how the money's handled. I know who's sleeping with who. I know who's looking at pornography and who's not. I know who's reading their Bible and who's not. I know who's praying and who's not. I know who the gripes are in that church. I know the critics in that church. I know everything. I know it, it, my church throughout the entire globe, I have these penetrating eyes, and you're going to come before me. It's appointed unto all men to die, but after this, the judgment, there is no place to hide. He then he talks about smoldering judgment. Look at his smoldering judgment in 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And bronze is commonly used as the metal of judgment. It was used of the brazen altar. And I think that's where we get it. It's where you kill the animal at the tabernacle and the temple, made of brass, where judgment, the judgment of God, fell on the substitute, fell on the animal. And so brass commonly is used as a symbol of severe judgment. Uh, gold, often a deity of Christ, purity of Christ. But it's, it's a metal, and here it's pure, it's burning, and it pictures someone who can walk. I'm walking among these lampstands, and I'm walking among them, not to just brag on them, encourage them, but to correct them, commend where I can, and correct, and I'm going to talk this strong. You had better repent, or I will remove you. Strong. I'm not suggesting what you should do. I'm commanding you what to do. Get all the church consultants you want and get all the opinions you want. This is what your sovereign, judicial Lord of Lords is saying to my own people. You. I'm here to judge Pergamum, Balaam, immorality, false teaching, doctrines of the Nicolaitans, morals of the Balaamites. You're getting my people to be immoral you're getting them to go into Nicolaitans, which the root word meant to conquer the laity. You're buying into a clergyism that puts God's people under the thumb of bishops and patriarchs and put them under the thumb. The curse of clergyism that exalts preachers and popes, magistrates above God's people. There is no one above the people but the Lord of the church, Christ. I'm one of you. I'm not above you. I'm a brother. I'm a brother that preaches, but I am not above you. I don't own you. I can't forgive you. I can't rescue you. I'm just as fallible, just as weak as you. It's the Lord of the church that keeps the church going, not a bunch of preachers. It's Christ. 
And if you don't like me, tell Christ. I'm here in obedience to him. I mean that. I hope you're here in obedience to him. Know why you're here. He knows why you're here. It gets old judging the preacher. There's no reward for judging preachers. It's a lot of wasted effort. You can't change the pulpit from the pew. If this ministry at the top are not God-fearing men, you need to find another church because you can't change the eldership just by griping on the pew. You could intercede for us. You can pray for us, and you can bring a Bible and show us where we're wrong. But it, otherwise, don't hang around trying to change it from the pew. It's the wrong thing. You want to worship. You want to serve. You want to get someplace where they have an exalted Christ and mere fallible men. Did you hear me? An exalted Christ and mere fallible men. Because see, the Puritan said, only God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can get his work done even through you and me. Isn't that a miracle? Because some of you are more crooked than others. Let's keep on. That's a little convicting. Uh, then he has this strong voice that he said, uh, I heard his voice like the sound of many waters. Spurgeon had a remarkable comment on this. He said that uh, if all the waters of the world were in a violent turmoil as in a hurricane, they would be but a whisper next to this voice. I heard Steve Lawson tell about doing a Bible conference. He was up uh, in New York by Niagara Falls, and his host mentioned to him, uh, uh, would you like to see the falls? Would you like to go? And he said, of course, love to see it. And uh, he went there, and he said his host wanted to fill him in on the history and you know, the different insights about the area. And he said, once we got to this lookout point, he said, my host was literally yelling in my ear, all to no profit. The falls drowned out all other voices. He said, all you could hear was just roaring. roaring. And the guy, and I want you to know this. And, uh, and Lawson said, I don't know a word you said. I ask you, how are you doing hearing God's voice? Oh, he sometimes whispers, but hear John. He says, John, there's a voice here in this cave louder than the waves out there beating up against this little island. This is the voice of eternity that has rung through the prophets, that has rung through the Old Testament, that is speaking now. The word that was made flesh has spoken. John! 90 A.D., Rome is not going to win. This is the voice of eternity. Hear my voice. A mighty, powerful voice that is still talking to believers, still talking to churches. What's interesting is he goes on to tell some ways I think he talks. He goes on in the next verse to say that in his right hand he had seven stars, 
and he calls them the seven angels. Now, the debate over these angels is, are they spirit being or are they human being? Because the word angel is the word for messenger. It's the Old Testament word malach that we get malachi. And so the debate is, are these angelic messengers that oversee each church? So we have an appointed angel over every local church. Some highly favor that view. It could be. Or would it be a picture of the spokesman to those churches as this letter was read? Either the, uh, the teaching elder that spoke for the group or preacher. How is Christ's voice being heard in the world today? Isn't it most commonly through preaching and teaching of the word? And what does he say? I'm holding in my right hand those who are speaking my word to my people and seeking to put out light, put out light to the culture they're in. A strong voice. And if we've ever needed to hear the voice of God, it's today. What is God saying to us personally? What does God want to do in your life? Are, are you uh, starting the new year okay? How many of you are reading through the Bible? That's a great place to hear his voice. Go to his word. But here he's speaking as his risen Christ. And then he says something that I'm astounded by. And I wish it didn't say it, but it does. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I, I, I... The two-edged sword is what bothers me. It's only used seven times in Scripture, six times in Revelation. The normal sword used to describe the Word of God, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That sword was about uh, anywhere from uh, six to eight inches long. It was a surgeon's tool. Uh, it was a butcher's tool, uh, cutting meat, to perform surgery. So it was a delicate, small tool. This tool is four to six feet long. Uh, it could weigh a good 50 pounds. And it came from the Thracians, the, the northerners up in Rome, up in Norse country, Norway, and, and the barbarians, the Gauls that came into Britain. And, and it was an instrument that when you went in battle, you assume this guy's got a shield. When you took this Thracian sword, four to, maybe four to five feet long, 40 to 50 pounds, you did it like this. Boom! You could shatter the shield or knock it out of the guy's hand, bust his arms. The tricky thing about it was this. When you went down... The guy with the short one could kill you. So you had to have a partner next to you. But it was a death blow instrument. Boom. And Christ says, John, what you see in me is the sword of my mouth that will be like a bludgeoning javelin sword. And this is the one I'm going to use at the Battle of Armageddon. It's used in Revelation 19 when he slays them with the word of his mouth. This is the sword that's used. 
He tells Pergamum, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bring my sword and I'm going to cast you in a bed of sickness. I'm going to kill your infants. I'm going to judge you so severely you won't know what hit you. This is not the picture of Christ we're used to living with. We're living with the Christ of the cross, the meek and lowly Jesus. Remember, this is the Christ that wants to clean up his churches and is getting ready to tell you what it's going to be like when he pours out his wrath on the earth. This will be no meek and lowly Jesus. This will be the mighty, powerful, sovereign. The cross is behind me. The throne is before me. And I will thrash the nations and the opposers, even in my church, I am coming, and I'm going to win the fight. See, we've lost the fear of Jesus. We've so tamed him. We so got him in Gethsemane. We got him like the lamb before the shears. And we're so used to a good Friday, the slain Jesus, that we seldom have preached our enthroned Jesus that's mighty and powerful and coming. No anemic Jesus. And what does John say? He said, his face was shining like the sun in his strength. I couldn't look into it. What did you do, John? What did you do? I fell at his feet, probably fainted. I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Think of that. Saw it. So brilliant, the sun. So shining, brilliant. You see, stars are to reflect the sun. Churches are to reflect the Did you know in the New Jerusalem, there is no PG&E? Did you know for eternity future, the only light furnished is the radiance that comes off of the Son of God? There is no light in the city because we've got the Lamb, and the Lamb will light up eternity for the saints. There will be no shadows. There will be no dark spots because we will have a glorified body and see him as he is and he will light up eternity for the church. There will be no lights. Just the Lamb. This is our Savior. And John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. I heard this passage preached at a pastor's conference maybe three or four years ago. There was a seminary banquet to follow, so we were on a tight schedule. The man that preached that day went an hour and a half in the sermon. And all I could say is the only mood in the room was for every pastor to get on his face and say, this is the Jesus that's evaluating my ministry? This is the Jesus evaluating the church I'm pastoring? This is who is standing over his church? I have to answer to him? And so do you. Don't make this the preacher's sermon. He's talking, are you a part of the church? I don't care what part you are. This is your head. He never gets sick. We get sick. And he talks to them, repent or I'll remove you. Repent. When I first started this church, 
We fell into a discipline situation of which none of us, anywhere that I knew of, had ever been in before. I was 27 years old. I'd never seen church discipline. We just gossiped, but we never disciplined. Uh, and so when this adulterer and thief, by his own confession, uh, mocks the church and mocks me by coming to me and telling me he's in adultery and that he, he's a thief by his actions, and then laughed when I said, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to have to do something about this. this. I didn't know what to do, but I said, this isn't right. And we looked at the Word of God, and 1 Corinthians 5, put him out, and, and I had nine, nine deacons in those days. David, Frank Griffith, John Fernandez, Kevin Shea, Steve Fernandez, uh, Phil Ross. There was about nine men. We, we were all just having fun, just a lot of young believers there too. And guess what? We put him out. We excommunicated him on a Sunday night for mocking God's word in church. You know why I did it? I was so scared that Jesus would remove us if we didn't obey him. I still run scared. I'm not afraid of you, I don't think. Some of you are scary. I'm afraid of him. And what I kept hearing him say, if you don't obey me, I'm going to simply. And you say, ooh, that church didn't take, did it? And he seemed to be a decent preacher. They seemed to be doing good. How, how did they all of a sudden become a has-been? They quit listening to the head. They wouldn't take the medicine. I know churches all around here, people sleeping with each other. The preacher, I know people, I know of churches, they say, well, he sleeps once in a while, but everybody does it so nobody can judge. You call him this church? Jesus, blow on the lamp. They're giving you such bad advertisement, they need to shut down and cut the hypocrisy. You're holy. You're pure. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal people's wives and kids. You don't cheat on the money. You are the head. And I hope in my heart, and us nine elders, something is scary. I was telling Tim, I said, Tim, I feel as an elder in a church, he's got two darling children, Carissa and Tim. I said, what if you wanted to get away for a week with Diane and you wanted someone to babysit your little twins for a week and then you came back and Timothy was beat up and Carissa had been abused? How would you feel? I said, I'm going to tell you, Jesus has left his church with men that he said, take care of my people, shepherd them, care for them, lay down your life for them. They are more important than your life. Because I'm going to ask you how you did my kids when I come back. That's what church is about. It's not where you get to sing a solo. It's where you get to bow to the sovereign. Help us to be the church you want us to be. I felt paralyzed and 
been a soul search ever since I've looked at this passage. Oh, Lord, search me, and if you see any wickedness, take it out of me. If you see any motive, any scheming, any plotting, any wrong motives, anything that wants to use this church and abuse this church and not be willing to lay my life down for it, purify my heart. I want to be pure in heart. We trust you for the numbers, for the additions, for the offerings, for, for favor in the community, favor with people. We want to abound. We want to grow. The darkness is so great, and the judgment is coming. I would think, Lord, save, save all that we would bust our doors just because of the famine and the judgment that's coming. We don't do a lot of things real great, but we do a few things we try. I come to you, Lord. I quote what you gave me. I know you have little strength. I know you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Therefore, I set before you an open door. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, hear me. We have not denied your name in this place. We still call you Lord. We still call you God. We still call you King of Kings. We still call you the sacrificial Lamb of God. We still say you're coming again in power and glory. We still say you were sinless. We still say you were born of a virgin girl. We still say you are the Messiah of the prophets. We have not denied your name. And we've been clinging to the Bible as we understand it these 41 years. It's all we got. If we're wrong, correct us. If we're wrong in spirit, if we're harsh in spirit, if we're playing fast and loose with the word, show us. Show us. Look through us. Don't let us be fooled. And then, Lord, we've got the same little strength that we landed with. We are of little strength against against the violent storm of our day. Unless you had voice of eternity keep us on our island of Patmos, only through you can we survive the onslaughts of the governments of the world. Keep your church. Revive your people. Enable us to repent, but please don't remove us. Don't remove us that we may make Christ 